Let us pray together. Ever-loving and ever-living God, in the beginning when the word, when the world was without form and shapeless, you spoke and your living word brought into being all that is good. At just the right time, you spoke and your word became flesh and dwelt amongst us full of grace and truth. And by your spirit and through your word, you continue to speak to us now. Deep within our hearts, with your still small voice of calm, calling us once again back to the foot of the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, may your anointing rest upon me now, that in the weakness and brokenness of my words, your grace may make that which is weak perfect to your glory. For this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the one and true living word. Amen. It's very good to be here with you all again. As one of Mr. Wesley's preachers in the British Isles, most of us engage in what we've come to think of as hit-and-run preaching. We still have a circuit system, which means it's very rare that one Sunday after the other, you're ever going to see the same preacher twice in a row. So it's always a great act of faith for me if I'm engaging in a series of sermons or talks that anybody will ever show up after the first one. We use a principle in the UK that basically people have forgotten how bad the sermon was by the time the preacher comes the next time over. <laughs> I should say that I've been immensely touched and I'm very grateful for the overwhelming warmth of hospitality that I've received while I've been here. And I will be praying for you all as I return to the UK and for the seminary here uh, daily. I'm not sure my wife will be quite so pleased about the overwhelmingly warm hospitality because my clothes are definitely tighter than they were when I arrived. That fried chicken is good. <laughs> Ye yesterday we explored the prophetic ministry of Christ as a precursor today to considering the apostolic ministry and life of the church. What it means for us to say in the creed that we believe that the church is apostolic. We noted yesterday that Christ's prophetic office is one which he has had since the foundation of the world, as the word through whom all creation was made, as the prenatal Christ known in the angel of Yahweh, as the one who speaks in his incarnate life, and as the one who is resurrected and alive and continues to address us from the future where he waits with the Father and sends the Spirit to us with redeeming grace. Today what I want to do is to consider in outline how that account of the prophetic life of Christ might ground Protestant accounts of what it means to speak of the church as apostolic. And because it would be unmethodist and untrinitarian to do otherwise, I have three points. <laughs> the first point really revolves around what Apostolicity, apostolicity is and isn't in light of Christ's prophetic word. I think it's worth us considering the options that we might have in terms of what it means to be an apostolic church 
before we go on to think about what the particularities that we as Protestants, and particularly as those who belong to holiness and Methodist movements, uh, might understand apostolicity to be. In one very straightforward sense, to speak of the church as apostolic is simply a way of talking about the authenticity of the church in terms of a chain encounter with the historical Jesus. Apostolicity means that we stem from the apostles, from those who encountered Jesus Christ in his resurrection, and who were encountered by those who came after them in the faith of the early church. And we are those who are encountered by those who are encountered by those who are encountered by those who are encountered back and back and back and back and back to Jesus himself who breathed the Holy Spirit upon his disciples in his resurrection. But the church has come to understand this in all kinds of ways, ways that I would want to say often relate to the way in which authority functions and is utilized within the church. And I want to explore three options that I think aren't necessarily the wisest options for us to consider. The first option that I think I'd want to reject is the one that we might consider the classical Roman Catholic or Orthodox position, a way of understanding apostolicity simply in relation to the historic succession of bishops. This is what I'd understand as an institutional form related to the ordination and consecration of mono-episcopal territorial bishops who are in communion with each other. It's not that these bishops are pronounced bishops ex nihilo or because of any personal charism that they might have. It's not that they are declared to be the bishops by the congregations that they serve. It's rather that they stand in historic succession with those who have gone before them all the way back, according to the chain of historic succession, back to Jesus Christ and back to the first apostles. They have hands laid upon them by those who had hands laid upon them, by those who had hands laid upon them, and on and on and on we go, right back to Jesus breathing on the disciples. This apostolic succession is meant to guard the truth of the church and the relationship of Jesus Christ that we have through the office of the bishop in relation to all of the other bishops. What this often means is that the ministry of Christ is passed on with the authority of Christ to bind and loose sins to a section, a class, a hierarchy of the church, which ensures the authenticity of the church. This group, the group of the bishops, are those who are the source of interpretation of scriptures just as their predecessors were those who governed over scriptures, writing, and the canon. They, in their tradition, and Scripture together jointly seek to rule over the church, preserving the traditions of the church. It's a little bit like that old joke that I'm sure you've all heard. How many bishops does it take to change a light bulb? Change, change. Who said anything about change? <laughs> Second is the inverse version of this handing on of the tradition and the charisma of the apostles to those in their personal authority. It's still the idea that the authority of the apostles proceeds through the church, but rather than being tied to the traditions of the church in historic succession, it's an idea that prioritizes the present in the here and now. The apostolic deposit, it is argued, is handed over and then shaped and formed by the apostles, and therefore the apostolic calling that we have today is to shape and form that deposit as well, to contextualize the gospel 
for all seasons and contexts. The authority here is still one which passes across to the apostles and which relativizes Scripture as the deposit of apostolic teaching, but with a firm sense that the apostles are the originators of the Scriptures who had authority over them in writing them, and thus today's apostles equally have authority over the deposit itself. The current possessors of apostolic offices, bishops, councils, leaders of church, denominations, dare I say conferences, professors, they are free to decide which parts of Scripture to affirm and which parts of Scripture to change. Rather than Scripture reigning supremely over the life of the church, the church in its contemporary apostolic form believes it has a right to rule over Scripture. Now, what's interesting to me is this first and second form, which seem to come from complete opposite angles, actually are flip sides of the same coin. One makes bishops all-powerful in their preservation of a tradition and a heritage which is passed on. The other makes the contemporary church, and perhaps especially the professor, as Martin Luther points out, very powerful in redefining what the gospel actually says. One preserves the post-biblical tradition, another reacts against that tradition, creating a new tradition separate from Scripture. But both point to the authority of the apostolic office over the sovereign rule of the Word of God. P.T. Forsyth, Aberdeen graduate, notes that the problem with both modern liberalism and traditional theories of apostolic succession stem from the same root. Let me read you this that he wrote in the 19th century. It is chiefly due to the error of thinking that a simple concept of religious evolution, evolution deploying under spiritual law in one direction with a steady swell, will suit history, especially religious history as well as it does biology. If that were true, however, I am afraid we would have to reduce Christ to a position essentially no higher than one of his apostles. Yes, he would be master, and they disciples, of course, but they would be eustem generis, like Socrates and his circle, and he could no longer be viewed as the revelationary fact, but only its discovery. But there is a third form of apostolicity, which I think is also problematic for the magisterial Protestant traditions. It's a third form which fails to capture what I think might be the core of apostolicity, which says there is nothing apostolic in the church. There is only me and the Word of God. It's the bumper sticker Christianity which says the Bible says it, I believe it, that does it. Of course, that's a challenge for all of us because it would put us out of jobs if that were the case. This is a version which is associated with certain forms of radical reformation, rejecting all interpretative wisdom and counsels and creeds of the church, and prioritizing the individual's reading of Scripture over the reading of Scripture by the communion of saints and the whole of the church across space and time. Crucially, this approach fails to see that the Word of God is given over to the apostles corporately and collectively. 
it fails as well to see that the Word of God has by an event of the act of the Spirit, a telos, a terminus, an event, and that event is the creation of the life of the church. It is the church which is creatura verbi, and within that, the individual. Dare I again quote Calvin in these hollowed Arminian halls, but he asserts, what else are the Nicene fathers doing when they declare the Father and the Son of one essence, but simply expounding the real meaning of Scripture? For both Calvin and Luther, at the height of the Reformation, the role of the councils, the role of the apostolic tradition, was not a role that was in any way in contest with Scripture. It was simply an enactment of what it means to say that the church is a creature of the Word. It was the joint and corporate reading of Scripture together. Councils for them simply state what the Word of God states. And for them, what happens is that these councils provide some small coda, some minimal expression of what it means when we read the words Jesus Christ and when we read the words God. Again, to quote Calvin, and I think I'm pushing my luck, we willingly embrace and reverence as holy the early councils which were concerned with refuting errors insofar as they relate to the teaching of faith in the Bible, for they contain nothing but the pure and genuine exposition of Scripture, which the Holy Fathers applied with spiritual prudence to crush the enemies of religion who had arisen. This is a point which is made repeatedly by Martin Luther in his treatise on the councils and the church. And in this, Luther, whose great emphasis was on sola scriptura, nevertheless argues that councils are important because they are an enactment of sola scriptura. It is because those who are gathered there seek faithfully to read the Word of God that they can say this. But his argument goes even further. And he says that the power that comes from the creeds which are produced is not simply that the church collectively came together and read Scripture, but their real power is that we, across space and across time, say those words of the creed affirming them as a reading of Scripture in the here and now, affirming the sovereignty of the Word, because, as Luther says, the sheep know the voice of their master. For us, I want to say it is this sense of the Word having a telos in the life of the church by the Spirit that is the core, the start of our apostolic ministry, since it is in the Word of God which we as a people encounter the ever-living, ever-alive, sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Apostolicity is therefore as it was for the disciples who first heard and first saw the resurrected Jesus before they were sent out to preach, an account of our reception of the living Word of God by the Spirit in the here and now, in which the ever-living and ever-speaking resurrected Jesus addresses and encounters the church, and through the church, its believers who hear Him proclaimed. It is because salvation and faith are appropriately located 
in Christ alone, solus Christus, that the Reformers advocate that Scripture governs and rules the church, since Christ is to be discovered in the testimony of the witnesses to that first encounter with Him, and in the living encounter we now have because of that through the Holy Spirit and through the Word. There's an important hierarchy to be noted here. As Karl Barth puts it, in the 16th century, the evangelical decision was taken that the church has not to seek and find the word and authority of Jesus Christ except where Christ himself has established it, that it and its word and authority can derive only from the word and authority of the apostolic witnesses, that its word and authority are always confronted by those witnesses and are measured and must be judged by them. This is what the Reformation was trying to say and did say in its affirmation that Holy Scripture alone has divine authority in the church. It was not ascribing a godlike value to the book as a book or the letter as a letter in some sinister antithesis to spirit and power and life. But it wanted Jesus Christ, the living Christ, to be known and acknowledged as Lord of the church, whose revelation would not have been revelation if it had not reached and created apostles and prophets. And even in the present day, the church is a revelation of God only and strictly in this sense. We would want, I think therefore, or I would want at least, to say that any Protestant account of apostolicity must say, and this is my second point, It is encounter with the ever-living Christ in his prophetic office which enables us to have apostolicity just as much as it is our apostolicity which enables us to have encounter with Jesus Christ. The two must never be separated. Let me say that again. It is encounter with the ever-living Christ in his prophetic office which enables us to have apostolicity just as much as it is our apostolicity which enables us to have encounter with the living Jesus Christ. Encountering the aliveness of Christ through the gift of his Holy Spirit is the condition for our apostolicity. And since this gift is given over to the church, The principal locus of our encounter with Christ is in the life of the community who has heard and received and only then spoken the gospel faithfully in every age, who has part of the ongoing community of saints, who have received the living word of God and sat patiently waiting for it. To quote Forsyth once again, Christ certainly was the final and complete revelation of God in every material sense. In him, the great transaction was done, the great word said. In him, we have history's final cause and final crown. In him, we have the great close. All moments up to him now go on in him. In Christ, creation arrived. It attained its good. In every material sense, that is so. But in a formal sense, it is not so. The material revelation and consummation in Christ is not complete 
without a formal consummation in the church and its interpretation. The finished work of Christ was not finished until it arrived home. After all, a lesson is not taught till it is learned. He made the real victory real, and then he went on to make it actual for us. The great close in Christ had itself to be closed by the Spirit, or at least clinched in a closing of its own. Now, I said much more about the conditions and questions of divine agency, especially in relation to the economy of the Spirit in the research paper that some of you were at yesterday. But the core sense of this rests in the fact that Christ has spoken the final and complete word, but by the Spirit actualizes this word and makes it ever anew in every age, in every generation, and in every place, in the penultimacy and contingencies of the situations in which we live. Having heard, we are sent and we speak. But the first condition of apostolicity is that we hear, that we hear the prophetic voice of Christ which reaches out across the ages, that we encounter the living Lord Jesus and listen to him before we dare utter a word. Consider Paul's words. How then can they call on one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? And how can they preach unless they are sent? In some ways, that's the core essence of apostolicity. But what is the condition of preaching? What is the condition of being sent? It is the condition of hearing the Word of God. It is the commission of Jesus Christ, hearing that Christ saves us, even us. Every aspect of the preaching office rests in hearing the living voice of the prophetic Christ by the Spirit. The word, the word has a terminus. And its terminus is in here. And those of us who seek to say anything, we need to wait upon the words of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We need to acknowledge and desire that terminus of faith. We speak only when we have heard. And we speak only when we have encountered him. Through the gift of the Spirit, these words in their grace flow from those before us who have heard and have received, and instruct us and encourage us and exhort us and challenge us. Because in his resurrection, Christ is speaking. Because we can hear through the gift of his Spirit, we are empowered then to speak by the same Spirit who rested on Christ in a way that enabled others to encounter him. This is not just a reality in the present age, but it's one that stretches all the way back through the whole of the church. It is the reality of the communion of saints, a communion which is not just a communion of the past, but a communion that contains all of those saints in the future 
who is yet uh, unborn and unknown as well. This is the apostolic ministry of the life of the church, back to the apostles and forward to the eschaton. It is the ministry of the church which recognizes the one who spoke and commissioned them and sat and listened. I think Karl Barth is fantastic on this point. It is impossible to speak, says Barth, without first having heard. All speaking is a response to what we have heard. All speaking is a response to those who are our fathers and brethren who have come before us and spoken the gospel to us. Therefore, these fathers and brethren have an authority, an authority as prior witnesses, prior hearers of the Word of God, who have to be respected as such. Just because the evangelical confession is a confession of the vitality and presence of God's Word actualized again and again, it is also a confession of the communion of saints it creates, and therefore of what it is, in a sense, as an authoritative tradition of the Word of God, that is, of a human form, in which that Word comes to all who are summoned by it, to faith and witness in the sphere of the church and by its mouth, of a human form which is proper to the witness of those who have come before us. The church's authoritative tradition known through the early ecumenical councils, which have helped us to know what the reference God and Christ mean, secure that it is Christ and not ourselves that we encounter. That it is the Christ who encountered the apostles, the Christ known not just individually but by the many who met him in his resurrection life. But it is also because we actually do encounter the living Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, by his Holy Spirit, and in his word, that we need to wait patiently and learn more from him as he speaks. These two things should never be prized apart for us. As with the first apostles, our words must be based upon the sovereign words of him, as the one who not only has the words of eternal life, but is himself the word of eternal life. We must reflect what we have heard and received in our encounter with the prophetic Christ, always moving beyond ourselves and moving towards him, learning from others around us who have waited patiently upon his word as they seek to explicate the words of Scripture to us, and like John the Baptist, we all of us, teacher or student, must share in saying the same thing. I must recede as he accedes. It is Christ who is the living and sovereign one. And we are those encountered by him who receive his word. A word which is faithful, a word which is true. A word which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of the one who was and is and is to come. The word of the one who is the great Alpha and the Omega. But in time, what a miracle. In time we hear those words.
in our faltering, in our failing, in our stuttering words, we hear the voice of the Lamb. Thirdly and finally, what's so distinctively Protestant about all of this? What's so distinctively Protestant about all of this? Well, in this final point, I want to identify just three things. I thought that was doubly Trinitarian which stem from this authority of the sovereign living encounter with Christ, who as the great prophet is the source of all encounter with God and the everlasting word, the basis and end of all speech about God. And these three things, as well as the unity of word and spirit that I've been harking on about in every talk I've given here, these three things, it seems to me, might begin to give an outline of what a Protestant account of apostolicity might be. First of all, I want to say that Christ reaches us by the Spirit from Christ's future. Christ reaches us by the Spirit from his future. For us, as Protestants, apostolicity is not just a heritage which is behind us. It's not just a sequence of hands being put upon people's heads. Rather, taking seriously the sinfulness and fallenness of the church, the limitations of human authority within the church, the propensities that we all have to religion and to idolatry rather than the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded that the Word of God breaks forth from its glorious day in the future to us in the here and now. Yes, reconciliation is all that Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and through the resurrection. But redemption is that which awaits us and is given to us as a foretaste, as a seal in the here and in the now. And it is in the invasion of the Holy Spirit into creation that we begin to understand what it means to be apostolic as we live towards that moment when God shall be all in all. Apostolicity is a dogmatic claim, is a claim which is contained within the early councils of the church, is a claim which exists under the third article of the creed, under the article about the Holy Spirit. Apostolicity belongs to, subsists within the sovereignty of the Spirit who makes Christ's future for us present now. That's why prophecy and apostolicity are so closely united. It's why for us our apostolic calling is one focused always upon mission, upon spreading abroad the living encounter that we can all have with Jesus Christ who is Savior of all. Why? Because all need to be saved. All can be saved. And all can know that they are saved. As Charles Wesley puts it in the hymn, Jesus, the name high over all, oh, that the world might taste and see the riches of his grace, the arms of love that compass me would all mankind embrace. Or in a different idiom from Bart, the main concern of the ongoing history of the prophecy of Jesus Christ, which fills our time, is a concern with those who are not yet Christian. Their existence is a reminder of the darkness which resists God. It is for their sake that it must go forward, that Jesus Christ, as the living word, is still on the way today. Their conversion, from ignorance to knowledge, from unbelief to faith, from bondage to freedom, from night to day, theirs is the goal of Christ's prophetic work, in so much as it has a temporal goal.
Such inbreaking from the future is one which also captures the fact that our prophetic calling, which shapes the apostolicity that we have, is one that involves at once a Yahwistic ethic, but also a Yahwistic eschatology. These two are conjoined. It's a breaking in with a transformation that is brought about as the kingdom comes, because the king seeks to establish a kingdom. Brueggemann writes, widow, orphan, alien, they are ciphers for the most vulnerable and powerless and marginalized in society, who are without legal recourse or economic leverage. Their destiny is linked to the destiny of the whole community. Thus, the mosaic ethic, as practiced by prophetic mediation, is broadly based covenantal communitarianism in which justice and righteousness assure that individual good is a subset of our communal well-being. We proclaim the king who is, after all, establishing a kingdom where justice and mercy will flow like rivers. The eschatological imagery of the future that we have, that prophetic imagery, which has been completed in Christ and is breaking into the world in the Spirit, is one that we are to proclaim and practice now. As the imagery from Matthew 25 reminds us, where were you when I was naked and hungry and thirsty? Secondly, I want to say that we are all to speak the word of God to one another. One of the things that is distinctively Protestant about this account is that apostolicity is corporate before it is to do with any office. The apostolic call is grounded in the whole people of God. It is the church which is apostolic, not a set-aside group, since it is the succession of those who have encountered the resurrected Jesus, and since in faith and by the Spirit and the Word, we continue to do so today. That we believe we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that we believe we encounter him, that is our apostolicity. That is the sovereign rule of the word of God known through the Holy Spirit over the whole church. That is what apostolicity is trying to capture. We each and every one of us, every one of us is called to encounter Jesus Christ as the living Lord. We each and every one of us is baptized by the Spirit. We each and every one of us are called to be people of one book. We each and every one of us are to speak the word of God to one another. We each and every one of us are called to engage in mission. To be encountered by the prophetic Jesus, to hear and receive his word, to be sent out into the world with the message of salvation in him is a calling which does not belong to one small group. It is a calling, a high calling, that each and every one of us has. Let me quote Wesley's hymn again. Him, as my righteousness I show, his saving truth proclaim. Tis all our business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. This is a calling which is upon us all, and it is only as a derivation 
of this, that there are those who are called within an apostolic church to hold a teaching office. And that's my third and final point, very briefly. The preaching office is the fulfillment of this, calling for us all in the ministry institutionally. In my final minute of these two sermons come lectures, I want to say something that is really important to me. So if you've been asleep up till now or thought it's been useless so far, just listen up. I want to say that I fear within at least my own church, the Methodist church in the UK, but I fear maybe across the world that we have lost our high apostolic and prophetic calling as a sense of what we are about. We've moved to a situation where we have my church is a trendycoffeeshop.com and where ministers want to be baristas. At least in my own context, we've lost confidence in our calling to be sent to the world with the prophetic words of the great and high prophet, the one who comes before all and continues to live, who is Jesus Christ. So often throughout the 20th century, our focus has been on the priestly office of the minister. And for reasons I've written about at far too much length elsewhere, I'm not sure of the wisdom of that. Our authority as ministers of the gospel stems from that gospel, stems from the internal authority the Spirit gives us to speak the Word of God, stems from the twofold encounter that we are all called to have. Firstly, the encounter of Word and Spirit with those within the church, with God's people. And secondly, and just as importantly, if not more so, the encounter with the Word and Spirit and all of those outside the church that God desires to be God's people. This internal authority is recognized by external authority bestowed upon ministers by the church as they call them to be public preachers of the gospel. No different in kind than anyone else, but set aside for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to exercise publicly that to which we are all called. Whenever I go to an Orthodox service or a Roman Catholic service and I see them celebrate the Mass and the Eucharist with such seriousness, I'm somewhat depressed by the fact that we do not engage with the same seriousness in the breaking of the Word, which is the call of the ministry to which we are called. We have once and again to find hope and joy and challenge in that high calling to be encountered by Jesus Christ through his word and his spirit and to share that encounter with others who are encountering him as well. Having heard, for goodness sake, let us speak. We must have confidence that the eternal God desires to encounter us by his everlasting word and his Holy Spirit who is at work and reaches, reaches through us as he did through prophets and heralds of his world of old, reaches through us to the creation he is bringing to redemption, reaches through us just as he did through Moses 
who, like us, was a man of slow speech and yet derived his authority to speak from where? From encounter with the living God. For us to speak in the church, to speak the gospel of God, is just as miraculous now as it was back then. Just as miraculous now as it was with the burning bush. Just as powerful now as it was with the leading of the Hebrews out of Egypt. Just as liberating now as it was with the liberation of the slaves. Brothers and sisters, God has not changed. We have. Rooted and grounded in love, we can do little better than hear Charles Wesley's words, and with these I end. Happy, if with my latest breath, I may but gasp his name. Preach him to all, and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Be glory and honor and praise 